G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. The world is undergoing a geopolitical restructuring and human transition on a scale which has not been seen for perhaps a thousand years. That quote from Gregory Copley, a strategic analyst and uh, in the Defence and Foreign Affairs Strategic Policy 2016. How did we get to this point? What are the global trends, especially as they relate to Christian persecution? Well, Elizabeth Kendall is an international religious liberty analyst. Her Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin helps facilitate strategic prayer. She serves as the Director of Advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom and is an adjunct research fellow in the Arthur Jeffries Centre for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology. Elizabeth's also authored two books, Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and her new book is called After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Well, it is always so good to talk to Elizabeth Kendall and a great topic of conversation ahead of us this coming hour. Elizabeth Kendall, welcome along to 2020. And thank you for having me again, Neil. Well, Elizabeth, actually, it's not that long since we were last talking, only a couple of weeks by my estimation, but uh, certainly strategic having you back today because there is news that's in the headlines even now uh, which reinforces the challenge that we were talking about last time we were having a conversation similar to this. And last time we were talking about how we understand what's going on in Syria. Uh, which we would describe as the biggest humanitarian tragedy on the face of the earth right now. And it is so complicated, nobody seems to know who is on whose side. In fact, last time we were talking, we were saying, whose side are you cheering for? Because it's so difficult to know who's the good guys and who's not. In fact, probably uh, reflecting on some of that whole idea of uh, baddies versus baddies might be a way to describe what's going on there. But Elizabeth, uh, more headlines and Australia in the middle of some of those with this bombing attack on uh, a Syrian base, 62 soldiers killed. Uh, how have you been feeling about those sorts of headlines as you've been seeing them? Oh, that's absolutely tragic. I felt uh, ill in my stomach when I heard that. Um, people need to understand that for the Christians of Syria and the Alawites, all the minorities of Syria, the only thing standing between them and extinction is the Syrian army. Uh, the Syrian army, which is now has West has uh, Russian air cover, is literally standing between uh, the Christian and minority population and the jihadists who uh, seek to wipe them out. So to hear that, that the West has uh, killed, uh, you know, pr- they think it's probably more like about 80 to 90 uh, Syrian soldiers was absolutely devastating. And the thing is that the, the jihadis that they're fighting, they are recruiting from a, a global bottomless pit. 
whereas the Syrian army is itself a limited force. Now there are, uh, you know, there are Iranian fighters coming in, and Hezbollah fighters are on the ground as well, helping the Syrian army. But really, the Syrian army, which is the safest bet for Christians, uh, is a limited uh, resource. So to, to see that the West was involved in that attack was tragic. And there's an investigation underway. And so we really can't say much while that investigation is in progress. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are very suspicious about what has happened here. It, it's either criminal negligence, you know, like so many people have been killed uh, by um, American uh, drone attacks and bomb attacks, especially in Afghanistan, many, so many civilians because uh, the Americans are using satellite images. They don't have the benefit of, of the Syrians and the Russians on the ground in Syria to be able to uh, really determine who's in that truck. <laughs> so uh, they're at a, at a disadvantage. This is either criminal negligence or it was a deliberate uh, attack on the, uh, the Syrian government. And there are many who are deeply suspicious of this. And I don't think that's unreasonable, but I think we need to just wait and see what the uh, see what the investigation comes up with, and what some other really insightful uh, intelligence analysts can uh, can produce in the weeks to ahead. Things that we do know, though, and we can make some comment on, because we're actually talking about what happens to the Christians in Syria. And as we just recount some of these things, because uh, it's the Christians in Syria who are being attacked on, some would say, all sides. Uh, But there is a sense, isn't there, Elizabeth Kendall, that even though people might have problems with the Alawite uh, Assad regime, that's the regime that actually is protecting the Christians at this point. In fact, uh, they may have been wiped out uh, before now had it not been for the uh, the Assad regime and uh, the support of the Russians. How do you see all of that and, and where Christians sit in all of this? Well, that's exactly right, what you, what you just said. Um, and people forget that it, it's been the, the Syrian government which um, you know, people sort of use the term Assad regime in a negative way to sort of sound evil. But, you know, this, the, the Syrian government, you know, had plenty of uh, Sunnis in it. There were Sunnis in the government, high up in the government. They were mostly Ba'athist Sunnis, so they were uh, Syrian nationalists. Uh, they, were, um, they were not uh, devout religious Sunnis. They were secular Sunnis, business-orientated Sunnis. Uh, there have been uh, Christians. It really, the divide isn't totally sectarian. It's more, so it's not Sunnis versus the Alawites and uh, the other minorities. It really is uh, Islamic fundamentalists uh, versus the rest. Um, and and so yes, yeah, so the so the government. You'll, if you see photographs of of Damascus, you'll see numerous uh, women who are fully veiled. There are plenty of Muslim women, uh, Sunni Muslims, uh, sheltering in Damascus, having been driven from their homes by by uh, Islamic fundamentalists, and not and you know these are free Syrian army fighters as well as Al Qaeda and ISIS, and they're sheltering under uh, uh, under uh, the government. They're ex- hoping the government is going to keep Syria safe from falling into the hands of Islamic jihadists. 
So people need to realise this is not just about Sunnis versus the rest. It's about fundamentalist, radical, pro-Sharia Islam and fundamentalist Muslims versus the rest. And that includes uh, secular uh, Sunnis as well. Uh, Some people are questioning what we're doing there. And, of course, uh, the answer to that, uh, as I understand it, that is reflected when politicians speak, is to drive back ISIS. Are we? What's your opinion, Elizabeth Kendall? Uh, is it something that we ought to be involved in or is this something that Australia should be on the sidelines about? Well, I think Australia should really be focused. And in fact, I think the West should be focused on the plight of the minorities. You've got three powers here. You've got Turkey, Iran and Saudi Arabia or Saudi Arabia and Qatar, the Arabs, all fighting for, for the control of Mesopotamia or Syria and Iraq, the Fertile Crescent. Um, you know, Baghdad and Basra has already fallen under the wing of, of Iran, and uh, Syria is really uh, the, the state that's in play at the moment. But, um, you know, these, these states are fighting it out, and what, what, what's happening at the moment is that the West is providing air cover for Shiite militias in Iraq and is providing air cover for Sunni militias in Syria. And meanwhile, the, the Christians and the Alawites, who would, also, who would be exterminated in a flash if the government was to fall, uh, they are just being uh, ignored, and they are being slaughtered, and, and they are being swept out of the arena uh, by uh, Muslims who, have, who believe that their opportunity has come to get rid of the Christians. A really interesting uh, bit of footage has just uh, become available of um, uh, American soldiers fighting alongside the Turkish army in the very north of Syria. So the Turks have crossed the border. Uh, They're fighting inside Syria. They're trying to push the Kurds back, and there are Americans amongst them. And they've come in contact with the Free Syrian Army which is being backed and armed and funded by the Americans. And the Free Syrian Army drives the Americans away. And one of the things they scream at them uh, as they're chanting at them is Christians and Americans have no place among us. So right from the beginning, the West has been backing fighters whom they call moderate, and yet these are fighters who say Christians have no place amongst us. That is not a moderate position. And that is why Christians on the ground in Syria have been saying right from the beginning there are no such things as moderate jihadis. Uh, and they've been pleading for the West to listen to them and believe them that their, that their very existence is, uh, is, uh, you know, is up for grabs. And, uh, you know, the West hasn't believed them, largely. No. no. Well, I want to invite our listeners to participate in our conversation at 1-800-316-316. Our talkback line is open if you'd like to contribute to the conversation in whatever way you'd like to. Uh, Perhaps it could be uh, something standing in solidarity with Christian believers. You might have a question about Christian believers because we're going to widen our conversation uh, to talk about global trends on Christian persecution. 
you might like to join this conversation, 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth, let me take you back to the quote I gave in the introduction today because uh, I got that quote from your Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin. Uh, it's all about the uh, the issues that are going on in the world. The quote was, the world is undergoing a geopolitical restructuring and human transition on a scale which has not been seen for perhaps a thousand years. Uh, what's the truth about that quote? Well, it, well, you know, this is the reality. But this is not some... What's happening in the world today is not a small thing that, like a hiccup that will soon be over. Uh, it's actually the culmination of numerous trends. Uh, now, each of these trends in and of themselves uh, are, you know, we can address them, we can uh, deal with them. But as they are left unattended and they converge with each other, you end up with what is essentially a flood. Uh, and, and we're in a position today, um, there's a whole lot of illustrations I could use to, to describe it. One is that the church is like the frog in the pot, you know, the proverbial frog in the pot that has sat there as the heat has risen and then bang, you know, all of a sudden they realise that, that they're cooked. Uh, one of the illustrations I like to use is, is that of, um, you know, building floodwaters and uh, people who live in Brisbane and other places who have experienced, you know, the onslaught of floodwaters know what this is like, where all these streams uh, bring all their water together, the water converges and uh, forms this critical mass, and it's like we're in this position where we're suddenly noticing that uh, there's this roar in the distance and there's water swelling up around our ankles and it's just, it's, a, it's coming upon us. So it doesn't happen overnight. It actually builds over a long period of time. And uh, I have found uh, when I've been speaking and, I, and I've put all this material now on my uh, elizabethkendall.com website on the front page there because when people can understand how this climate has, uh, come to be over the last 50, 60 years, then they realise how serious the situation is. This is not a small thing. Uh, we are entering a whole new age and largely I believe the church is not prepared. We have been sleeping through the build-up and now it's upon us and we are not prepared. But we need to understand that this is bigger than us uh, we need to be looking to God, we need to be coming together as the body of Christ, and we need to uh, really get prepared very, very quickly. You say 50 or 60 years, mm-hmm. and for many of our listeners to this conversation, we're talking about our lifetimes. Let's talk about that 50 years. Let's talk about the changes, the convergence of these trends. What are the biggest things to understand as we appreciate the changes that are going on in the world today? Uh, Let's talk about that 50 years. Okay, well, I would suggest that there are two two major streams that have come together to, to create this perfect storm that we're in. One is the rise of social tensions and the other is the rise of religious tensions. These two things have come together so that a lot of our social struggles or social issues now have a religious dimension. So if we just look at the social tensions for a minute, uh, since uh, uh, after World War II, uh, we had uh, great developments 
in industrialization, in medical technology, and, and these things created um, a very, very rapid growth in population. So, you know, in 1950, uh, there were about 3 billion people in the world, and by the year 2000, that was over 6 billion. Now it's over 7 billion. This is massive population growth. And most of that population growth was in the non-Western world, you know, where, where there wasn't access to uh, contraception and, uh, and things like that. So you have a lot more people uh, competing for resources, competing for space, uh, competing for jobs and everything. And I guess yeah. we've got mega cities that have been born out of that massive population growth. Well, that's right, because another one of the trends in the same era has been the rising uh, urbanisation. So in 1950, the majority of people in the world were not urbanites, uh, but today they are. In fact, in 2007 was the year that we tipped the balance and became a majority urbanised population, and that's in the world. Now, in countries like, um, like the US and most uh, highly developed countries, the mega cities, that is the really super multi-million cities, uh, they have grown over the course of time. And their, uh, their infrastructure and their institutions have grown with them uh, over the course of maybe 100 years or 200 years or 300 years or even more. But if you go into the developing world, you find that the population has skyrocketed just in like maybe a generation or 50 years and none of the infrastructure and the institutions are there to support it. And so you go, for, go to a city like Karachi, right, in, in Pakistan. Now, in, uh, in the 1940s, Karachi was a fishing village with a population of a bit over 400,000. But today it's home to 23 million, or more than 23 million. And uh, about 90% of them are immigrants. 25% of the immigrants are Pashtuns from Afghanistan. And 50% of Karachi live in slums. So what you have is this, you have this mass of humanity. Virtually everybody is armed. I think Karachi is said to be home to 23 million people and 40 million guns. And this, this city does not have the infrastructure and the institutions to keep it orderly. So basically they become lawless. And in their lawlessness, the warlords, the terrorists, the traffickers start controlling their own, uh, their own domains. And this makes these cities incredibly dangerous for Christians. So we've got these social tensions, huge population growth, urbanisation that's never been seen before. Now, just quickly, Elizabeth, the religious tensions that have developed with the growth of populations in the way that they have. Well, we've seen a number of religious uh, trends in, in, the, in the last 50 years. Uh, probably the most significant has been the phenomenal growth of evangelical Christianity in the non-Western world. So in the 1960s, the church was about 80% white, Western and middle class. And most Christians lived in majority Christian states in the West, uh, with states that have a Judeo-Christian foundation and which are secure and safe environments. But today, 
due primarily to the rise of indigenous mission organisations. So Indians now not just being um, uh, receiving witness from the West, but going out and witnessing across India and even into Central Asia, for, for example. We see the rise of this indigenous mission movement today the church is 80% coloured, poor and non-Western. And there are now millions, in fact hundreds of millions of Christians living as really vulnerable minorities in Muslim cultures and Hindu and Buddhist cultures. And they live under totalitarian regimes like in China. So we now have this massive uh, growth of the church in countries where Christians are persecuted. So that's one of the one of the uh, trends, right? The growth of Christianity that has happened at the same time as we have seen a rise in religious nationalism in countries like India that have gained independence at the end of the colonial era. They have uh, seen this rise of religious nationalism brought into their into their politics, and that has caused persecution to increase. We have also seen the rise of fundamentalist Islam, uh, uh, particularly since 1979 with the Islamic Revolution in Tehran and the siege of Mecca in, uh, also in 1979 that empowered the Islamic clerics and has caused this revival of fundamentalist Islam to become worldwide. All these things have come together uh, to create, you know, this uh, the, what what we call the perfect strategic storm of Christian persecution in the world today. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. It's Neil with you. Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, is our guest. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Steve in Parks in New South Wales. Hi, Steve. Thanks for being so patient. What are your thoughts? Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Uh, g'day, uh, Brother Neil and Sister Elizabeth. I've only got one question, and this would even... You know, it's, it's uh, the desperation, the hatred, the incessant... Hatred. You know, I remember Plato, he said only the dead have seen the end of war. And he said that over two and a half thousand years ago. I call on all religious leaders, Christian, Muslim, on His Holiness, uh, most eminent, the Pope in Rome and the Vatican, to push for peace talks, to get these dip- diplomats to the um, to the tables where, where the meeting, I remember in the old Vietnam days, I had the Paris peace talks. You know, it's always innocent women and children, people on the ground that have to suffer, you know, such horrible atrocities. They're the people, and I call on world Christian leaders to push for peace in the Middle East to end this awful, incessant hatred. When will it end? Steve, great thoughts. Your response, Elizabeth Kendall? Elizabeth, are you with us? Sad condition of the human being. And um, the the main hope that I say that we have is found in, in Isaiah, where we find, uh, uh, Isaiah says that, you know, in, in that day, um, uh, the, the people will t- 
turn to the Lord. They will come to the Lord to learn from his ways and to walk in his paths. And then they will, uh, then they will beat their swords into plowshares. So what we have here is a picture of spiritual transformation is absolutely necessary as the first step to social transformation. As long as we're constantly trying, I mean, it's good to try and change the social situation. And I think that, that we must do that as peacemakers. Uh, that's absolutely imperative. But the church needs to be really, really sure of its mandate that the church has more power than any army, any political force in the world uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring uh, radical change to the world. And only when people are spiritually transformed will they beat their swords into plowshares. Otherwise, they're just going to keep fighting. It's part of the, the sinfulness of human beings. And as for the situation in the Middle East, uh, the situation is so intractable. I have no idea how they can actually uh, create a, a peace treaty with people who seek the annihilation of Christians and non-Muslims. The church needs to be in prayer and the church needs to be active in mission. Steve from Parks in New South Wales, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020. Let's hear from Penny in Tasmania. Hello, Penny. Welcome along. Hi, Neil. Very Hello, well, Penny. Elizabeth. Hello. Very, very pleased to be able to speak to you, Elizabeth. Thank you you Penny. come up with such interesting and um, things to listen to. And would you say um, that, like the Bosnia and Kosovo uh, war, that really has a very long history. People look back to it. So the same or seri similar to Syria and their conflict and any a lot of the conflicts in the Middle East, would, would you say? Oh, yes, there are definite similarities because if you look at Bosnia and Kosovo, they, they share a very similar history with Syria in that they were all part of the Ottoman Empire and that they were all impacted by uh, centuries under Ottoman uh, Muslim Turkish rule. And that had an incredible impact on the demographics of the Balkans and of the Middle East. And uh, in fact, you know, the, the Armenian genocide was really the uh, the culmination of massacres that took place across the Middle East, across uh, the Balkans, and then you had the, the different uh, Christian nations splitting off from the Turkish uh, Empire, and so the Turks went out to kill the Armenians so that their empire wouldn't be broken up anymore. There's, they're all uh, connected by their history, and uh, there's, yeah, so there's very definite similarities between a lot of them. And I think it would be really wonderful if the West could really start uh, appreciating that history and what the Christian uh, people have suffered for hundreds of years under uh, Islamic domination, under the Turkish uh, Ottoman Empire, and their desire for freedom, their desire for religious liberty, their desire to be able to just live in, in peace and uh, to stop pandering actually so much to Turkey and to start really being serious about uh, defending the rights of Christians all through the Balkans and the Middle East. 
Thank you to Penny from Tasmania. We'll be continuing to take calls. Uh, We'll be continuing this conversation over the next half hour beyond Vision National News. Uh, Just uh, two and a half minutes away from the news, Elizabeth, let me ask you about uh, the way that a secular government, and Australia calls itself a secular nation, uh, sees the problems of the world. Do you think that people who call themselves secular have to look at those things through a secular lens and not understand the religious conflicts that are going on? Well, I think the word secular has really lost its original meaning. From what I understand, uh, secular has always used to be understood as a as a um, as an open space uh, where you know a religion did not dominate like say the Catholic Church used to in the Middle Ages or like Islam does in the Muslim world a, se- a secular state is a space where all people have their say it's got nothing to do with the foundations of the state so you can have a secular a state sitting on a Judeo-Christian foundation and that's what what I believe we used to have but secular today has come to mean uh, free of religion, um, to have no religion. And it's almost got to the point that secular is becoming synonymous with atheistic even and godless and religionless. So I would like to try and revive the original proper meaning of the, of the term secular. And, you know, I think everyone needs to understand that whether they personally have a faith or not, you cannot look at the Middle East and you cannot look at human beings and the world today without understanding religion. You just cannot do it. You have to understand religion and religious history. We are going to be continuing our conversation into the next hour beyond Vision National News. And one of the things I'd like to enlarge on with you, Elizabeth, is this growth of evangelical Christianity because you were describing ways in which the missionary movement, evangelical Christianity, has begun to move into so many contexts and that so many hundreds of millions of people are under extreme persecution. But I'm going to ask you after the news if that is, in fact, a bad thing, because some will say when you take on the challenge of being a part of what God is doing in mission, we do expose ourselves to danger, and some of those things are going to be very necessary for Christians to respond to in the times to come. Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, our guest. Our talkback line's open, 1-800-316-316. Well, Elizabeth Kendall, just before the news... I said we would pose a question because the sorts of things we're talking about for some listeners may actually be a little disturbing and some context might be required. We're talking about the growth of evangelical Christianity as one of those major trends over the past 50 years. The missionary movement taking the gospel message into very dangerous places around the world and what's happening coinciding with that of course is the rise of these other nationalism issues and the rise of Islam. You mentioned the rise of uh, nationalist uh, Hinduism. Well, Christians in vulnerable situations bringing the good news, the message of reconciliation. Uh, God is a missionary God. He is sending us into all the world with this message of the gospel. Now, is this a bad thing when Christians find themselves in this intense persecution? Uh, Or is this can it be even seen as being, dare I say it, a good thing? What are your thoughts? 
Well, I would say it's never a good thing. <clears throat> I think uh, no one, and this is this is an issue. I might say that divides Christians, divides uh, religious uh, liberty advocates. But I very, very strongly believe that persecution can never be a good thing, because as Christians we believe in justice, and we believe in righteousness. We believe that our God is good that he is a God of justice and a God of righteousness. We also believe in the whole theological concept of the union of Christ with his church. So when the church is persecuted, Christ is persecuted, Christ himself. And he said that when he stood before the Apostle Paul and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right. So we, we need to understand that this is serious sin, there is nothing good about rape and there is nothing good about torture. There is nothing good about murder. And just because uh, Jesus said that we should expect persecution doesn't mean that we're meant to accept persecution. Um, I, uh, I have a very strong uh, feeling about this. Now, I've got a piece on my, on my blog which is entitled Why We Should Be Reaching Muslims with the Gospel. And uh, it's, it's part of a message I gave at a, at a CMS missionary conference uh, in January 2015. And I, I point out that people often use Tertullian's quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, as a way of sort of suggesting that persecution is a good thing. You know, it actually does something good. It, it gives rise to the church. Well, I actually believe that Tertullian spoke a little bit out of line. Now, Tertullian was one of the early church fathers. Uh, so from right in uh, around, oh, he was in the 7th century. No, he was in about the 3rd century, I think, Tertullian. I think, and he was yep. in Carthage, which is Tunisia, the capital of Tunisia today. Now, when he said that the church was under persecution from the Romans, but later on in the 7th century, the armies of Muhammad came through and literally wiped out the church. And the church was, had dis disappeared for a thousand years in, in North Africa. Now, the Bible is clear. If you think about the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, the seed of the church is the gospel. And we are called to scatter the seed. And I believe that the blood of the martyrs works much like blood and bone in our gardens. It prepares the soil. But without the seed, it's just, it's just blood seeping into the sand. Well, certainly danger and persecution is not a great ad for a recruitment campaign for Christianity, is it? No. Uh, so, And balancing what you've said there, though, when we've got uh, this danger and this persecution... I suspect that what comes with the gospel message that Christian believers carry is something of the peace of God. And uh, sometimes people talk about the word shalom, which is that mm. word uh, that Jewish people use when they're talking about peace. And it's a great study to do to just find out what that word really means because what the believer carries with them. But sometimes, uh, Elizabeth, and I'll get your thoughts here, that we feel like uh, that God is going to do the work, but he's given to us hands and feet, the mm. hands and feet of Christ, to actually help to bring the facilitation of that peace to be brought to uh, to the fore. How do you see you know, the, the presence of those Christian believers, those evangelical Christians in those vulnerable situations 
their potential for bringing the peace of God into the circumstances they're in? Well, there's no doubt that God is at work in places where Christians are being persecuted today. And the reason that the church is growing in these countries, uh, even though it might be very tiny, like the church in Afghanistan or the church in Somalia, which has been, these churches have been essentially wiped out, but believers are coming to Christ very gradually, and even if they're having to stay deeply underground. Now, the persecution uh, does a number of things. Uh, one, it exposes the wickedness of Islam or of, uh, you know, militant Hinduism, of uh, totalitarian atheism, militant atheism. It exposes how morally uh, depraved and how morally bankrupt these ideologies are. And in the midst of this moral bankruptcy, which is now on display through this violence against peaceful Christians, uh, many people sort of the penny drops and they wake up and they think, boy, you know, this... This faith that I've followed all my life is actually pretty sick. And they look at Christians who are suffering. And yes, they see a a peace that passes all understanding. You know, they've been forced into poverty. They've lost loved ones. Uh, Terrible wickedness and injustice has been heaped upon them. And yet the peace of God exists in their lives. So not only are they these... uh, like Muslims through the, throughout the Middle East or in Pakistan or and, and, other, and other unbelievers, not only are they disillusioned by the worldview that they've you know, grown up in, but they're now attracted to something incredibly different and countercultural in the life of the Christian. And this is not because persecution is a good thing. It's because our God is a redeeming God who can take something terrible, as terrible as persecution, and redeem it uh, for his purposes. He took the cross and redeemed that situation for his purposes. You know, in, in dealing with sin and death, God went to the cross and he redeemed that wickedness of that crucifixion of the Son of God and, and, and he, he brought salvation for his people through this terrible thing. And he redeems not just persecution, he redeems your suffering and my suffering if we will open ourselves up to it. And uh, most people who have been through some serious suffering will know that uh, these were the days when they grew really close to God. And uh, maybe these were the days when they had uh, an, an experience of God's intimacy that they, would, they know they might not have had otherwise. And they know that God has redeemed their suffering for good. Uh, not that the suffering was good in and of itself, but that we have a great redeeming God. And, and my call to the church is we need to get on board and be working with God. And if you consider that the blood of the martyrs uh, prepares the soil, uh, you know, makes it fertile, then we need to be out there with the gospel. And we need to be out there now. This is not the day to disengage uh, from these dangerous fields. This is the day to be witnessing to Muslims uh, where you are, uh, uh, in your, in, through radio, through satellite television. Support those ministries with your funds. 
support missionaries, support the church on the front line with your intercessory prayers and really, really take it seriously because God is at work. We're taking calls, one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's hear from Silville in South Australia. Hello, is it Silville? Yes. Silville, what are your thoughts? Well, I agree that uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, a development in the world that's unprecedented. The, what I mean is in the old days, a tribe fought the other tribe to grab the land, you know, and, and that uh, stopped with Hitler, who wanted to grab Russia for the German people. Now, uh, there's the, a demographic development. I mean, <clears throat> every <clears throat> woman in the in Muslim world has a number of, of children that's far, <clears throat> far bigger than the number of children that are born in the West. So this is a demographic, a demographic uh, <clears throat> flood of people, and uh, <clears throat> under this trend, the Muslim is going to prevail, and uh, there's no way of stopping them from prevailing because <clears throat> the population, the Muslim population, doubles every 50 years at least. Silver, there's amazing thoughts that you've got in there. Response from Elizabeth Kendall. Uh, well, that's absolutely true. And this has been a, a, a situation that has uh, really uh, seized upon many people who study demographics over, over some period, the, particularly in countries like Europe, where the, the, uh, the, pop, the population of the, the native population, the native French, the native Germans, the native Dutch... Uh, basically now have negative uh, birth rates. They cannot replace their own populations. So what they're doing is they're encouraging migrants to come in and fill up the, the empty workspaces. And these migrants are Muslims who are having uh, children in large numbers. So demographics alone is going to cause huge problems for Europe. Now, the interesting thing about demographics, though, is in countries like Iran where the uh, Islamic Revolution uh, you know, came in in 1979 and people are now thoroughly disillusioned with it. Iran, Iran's birth rate crashed. In fact, no other country in the world, and I think in the history of the world, has seen their birth rate crash the way Iran's has from about, I think it's seven point something children per women in 1979 or before the revolution down to a negative rate today, like 1.3 or something. So Iran's birth rate is crashing. Uh, and also in the Arab world, there are cases of the birth rate uh, in massive decline, which is putting a lot of uh, Islamic leaders into a state of panic. And it's a dangerous panic because they know that they have to seize territory now and make their advances now. So it brings with it danger but it also shows that interesting things are happening in the Muslim world. And what we really need in, in Christian countries and, and in Christians in the church is for a real revival in the church so that Christians, and not just even Christians, but Westerners and people who have respect for 
uh, Christian values, Christians in all countries of all of all ethnicities uh, have have faith in the future enough to be having children again. Uh, what happens when you don't have confidence in the future is you stop having children, and that's what's happening in in, in so many uh, people. So Christians need to start coming to grips with the fact that God is on the throne, and we need to be having children. Well, I remember Peter Costello when he was the treasurer saying, uh, have one for mum, one for dad, and one for the nation. And uh, I guess three, if you're talking about uh, other uh, religions where seven children used to be the average, uh, that's still just a low number. So there's some encouragement there. Go and have some children. And if you're not, uh, if you're not confident about the future, get confident about the future and then have some children anyway. Uh, Silval, thank you so much for your input here today on 2020. Let's take another call. Jonathan is in Perth in WA. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome along. Yes. Yeah. I, I was listening to the speaker. I heard what she said. And, uh, you know, the Lord gave her a last prayer. We say, our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Mm-hmm. That will be the as it is in heaven. Give all this day our daily bread, and forgive our trespassing as we forgive those who trespassing against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This I'm going to make comment on. The Lord Himself give up prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So even though He talk about persecution, that does not give us the ground to embrace persecution. Absolutely. For example, they say fire is. Coming, it's going to destroy houses. Is on. Are we going to embrace the fire to burn our houses? No, we're going to prevent it mm. of not burning our houses. So even the law talk about persecution, that should not be the strategy for Christians to embrace persecution, dying and destroying their children, their future, everything gone because Christ says so. No. Absolutely. Good stuff, Jonathan. Deliver us from the evil one, Elizabeth Kendall. Your response to Jonathan. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for ringing in with that. I I say absolutely amen. Um, This has been an issue that has uh, really uh, taken up some of my, quite a bit of my time over the years in this ministry, dealing with people who are absolutely convinced that they should let the persecution run its course because, hey, that's how the church grows. And most of the people who think that have never actually suffered persecution. They have never had their children kidnapped and forcibly Islamized. They've never had their loved one uh, beheaded in the street. They're saying these things from a safe place. I was actually bailed up after a church meeting once by uh, one a gentleman who uh, really was furious with me. He said, the Bible says whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is honourable, think on these things. You shouldn't be talking about this stuff. You know, this is just, these, these attitudes in my mind are appalling. Uh, Christ, he, he yearns for his people. They are the, we are the beloved of his soul. And when Christians are persecuted and they are suffering and they have their children taken from them, they watch their loved ones killed and they see their homes burned. Um, uh, this grieves the Lord to, to, to the depths of his being. And I believe the other thing that grieves the Lord, and we have biblical uh, case for this, Isaiah 59 uh, testifies to this, the other thing that grieves the Lord is when the church stands back and does nothing. And there is no voice raised, no one to intercede. 
uh, that grieves the Lord uh, just as much. And I believe that if the church does not stand with her persecuted brothers and sisters, uh, doing those very things we've been called to do, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, to give generously and to pray without ceasing. I believe the Lord is angry with us if we do not do that. So thank you for ringing in and thank you for bringing the Lord's Prayer to our attention. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective. 2020 on Vision. It's Neil with you, Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, our guest. Time running out, just a couple of minutes, Elizabeth. Uh, that whole issue of what am I supposed to do? I mean, I can just turn the TV on and it'll appear to all go away. Uh, but uh, really, I guess there's so many distractions we have to deal with to actually come to grips with just the enormity and the importance of dealing with this issue. If you're saying something of encouragement to a listener who ordinarily would just turn the TV on or uh, turn on another song, uh, try to get these awful things out of their minds, what would be your, your biggest thing that you would say? Oh, look, I think we just need to get a... Uh, one of my one thing I feel very strongly about is this whole concept of the unity of Christ with his church, the fact that we are the body of Christ, that Christ identifies with his people uh, so intimately because it is a, a relationship of love forged uh, with blood and when our brothers and sisters are suffering the Lord is suffering so think about the Lord uh, suffering in in this we can't turn away we can't walk away now on my website elizabethkendall.com right in the center of the tabs going along the top is a tab entitled action and it's got a list of things that we can do uh, to uh, on behalf of the persecutor one is just to speak uh, to speak to our neighbours, to speak, to write, to write letters, uh, to talk to people. Um, uh, there's a quote there from Martin Luther King, a time comes when silence is betrayal. And I think our silence often betrays the persecutor. We need to be talking. We need to give generously. And I believe churches should be at the head of this. Um, churches need to be giving to organisations that support the persecuted because the, there are so many now. There are whole people groups who have been driven from their land and we need to be praying. And under each of these headings, I've got uh, you know ways to go about it, um, things to think about. I've got some suggestions for worship leaders, uh, suggestions for pastors. So, uh, you know, have a look at that, if you like. It'll give you some ideas on some of the things that we can do uh, to really try and make a difference. Well, I'll point people to that website, elizabethkendall.com, and keep an eye out for Elizabeth's books. Her newest one is called After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Uh, You can get a hold of that. There'll be a link on Elizabeth's website and also available in good bookstores. Elizabeth Kendall, always so good getting an update with you. And uh, thanks so much for sharing your heart again with us today here on 2020. Let's do this again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. 
Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.